Heavenly Father, we do submit to you tonight, Father, in acknowledgement that your word you uh, value even above your own name, you tell us in your word. And that if something is that important to you, then it must be that we should take it seriously ourselves. And so, Father, I confess and I, I suspect I'm not alone that sometimes we don't put your word where it deserves to be in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, perhaps sometimes we neglect to, to put our time into study. And perhaps other times, Father, we neglect to put our words into action. Uh, but, Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would continue to have patience with us as we endeavor to understand you and your word. And then, most of all, Father, please give us the strength of, of heart and character to keep your word, to be doers of your word, and to share not just the parts that we like or the parts that we are comfortable with, but to become someone who is ravenously desiring the whole counsel of your word so that no part of it remains foreign to us and so that all of it may be shared in the right season. Use this time tonight, Father, for that outcome in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all ready to study? All right, Matthew 9. We are nearing the end of our four-month, yes, I counted, four-month journey through these two chapters. And I know that's taken a little longer than, than you might have expected. It's even longer for what I normally do. But I think it's because there's so much here. From chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Matthew gave us ten miracles that were, I guess, a survey of the things that happened while Jesus ministered in the Galilee. And he grouped these, as you remember, into three groups. And we've reached the final of these three groups of miracles, the ones that come together now at the end of chapter 9. And these three that we're studying now all illustrate Jesus' restorative ministry, how Jesus came to restore all things. That's the overriding theme of these three. Circumstances that may have once been considered lost and beyond hope become new again become fresh again in Jesus by faith in Christ. And that reminds us of an important distinction that we started to notice, even just last week as we started in this section. We discovered last week that in this final group of miracles, they all share a characteristic that the prior two groups did not. And that is faith. That for these miracles, Jesus makes faith in Him a prerequisite to receiving his mercy, to receiving the miracle. Now in the past, Jesus healed anyone who came to him without regard for their faith. He didn't even talk to most of them. It was an open season, if you will. But now in these last three, he has made faith a requirement. And that change is evidence to us that we're seeing something new in Matthew's gospel. That he has assembled these uh, various events from different places in time this is not a chronology, as I mentioned before. He's mixed some things up in time to tell his story. And apparently there is a point in Jesus' ministry when everything changed. At a certain point in his earthly ministry, something happened that caused Jesus to alter his entire approach to ministry, particularly to these miracles. One of those changes was that he started to require faith from those who would receive anything from him. So where before, he openly offered himself as the Messiah to anyone and everyone, announcing the kingdom freely, inviting everyone to believe in him, performing miracles without distinction or without discrimination. Then after a certain point, all of that was different, and now faith was a prerequisite. He worked secretly. He did not announce himself publicly anymore. The event that precipitated that change is recorded in Matthew 12, chapter 12. And as we'll see when we get there, chapter 12 is the pivotal chapter in Matthew's gospel. 
Everything prior to chapter 12 is of one style, and everything after chapter 12 is a very different style of ministry. When we get there, we're going to understand exactly what this thing is that I'm refusing to tell you about now. That makes such a big difference in his ministry. But for now, here's what you need to understand for our purposes tonight. That moment that we're going to come to in chapter 12 impacted the three miracles that are now in this last group. That is the one we're studying now. That in this last group now, faith is a prerequisite. And Jesus asks people to keep his his activities secret. Which tells us that the miracles of this final group are all miracles that took place after chapter 12, chronologically. Matthew's just moved them back to this chapter because he wanted to include them as part of a story. Alright, so part of what you need to understand tonight, part of what we need to resolve tonight in our study, is why did Matthew want to end his two-chapter treatment of Jesus' miracles with this particular group that is focused on faith? And then we had that puzzle from last week. Do you remember? I love puzzles. Remember the puzzle from last week, that relationship that we noticed between the first two of the three miracles in this group. I I called it last week a miracle within a miracle because uh, Matthew's first miracle in this group involved Jairus, the synagogue official who wanted to see his daughter healed, remember? But before that story ever got going, then you had the woman come into the crowd and touch Jesus' cloak to get healed, remember? So we studied the one of the woman last last week because that's the one that really took center stage. And that means today we have to move back now to the first one that we never finished which was Jairus' daughter. And as we do, let's try to understand how these two situations connect, why they were intertwined in the way that the Lord did. What's the connection between them? All right? Because they're so intertwined, let's do this. Let's back up a few verses into what we studied last week, just as I read. So I'm going to read now the verses we covered last week as they lead us into what we're going to do tonight. So that begins in verse 18. It says, While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Now this is just review. But because these two stories intersect, I wanted to make sure we remember the first one well. So, you're familiar with this from last week. Remember the man responsible for enforcing proper worship in the synagogue has knelt down in a posture of worship before Jesus, which is taking a huge risk by demonstrating his faith in Jesus publicly in this way. And he does this because he wants to make this appeal to Jesus, like we saw last week. Now, the text in Matthew records that he says, my daughter's already died, but remember, as we saw last week, Matthew has condensed this story to kind of focus it on that point of resurrection. Mark tells us that when he left the house, his daughter was still alive, and he was hoping to get Jesus back to her before she died. So, at the time he meets Jesus, the father still believes that there's time left to save the daughter from death. And so Jesus says, let's do it. And as he sets out in this crowd that's so tight on him, he can barely breathe, we learned last week, this woman comes up secretly behind him, touches his clothing, convinced that that will heal her. And remember last week we said she did this because she believed two things. She believed Jesus was the Messiah. And number two, she believed Malachi when he said that the Messiah, when he came, would have healing in his wings. And wings is the Jewish term for the corners of the cloak that a man would wear. So she, in simple faith, concluded, if I touch the cloak, healing will be there for me, and I'll be healed. 
And then as Jesus sensed power leaving him and the woman being healed behind him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he turns around to look and see who had just been healed. And as he sees her, he tells her, no, your faith made you well, go in peace. She acted in faith, she believed in the word of God concerning Messiah, and on the basis of her faith, the Holy Spirit, we learned last week, did the healing through Jesus. And ironically, if you think about it for a minute, her faith in Malachi's promise, the promise that you find in Malachi 4, her faith in the word of God gave fulfillment to the very scripture that had inspired her to act in the first place. Because that is the fulfillment of healing in the wings. Now, as we ended last week, this is where we were, right? And as I ended last week, I suggested that that woman's experience was designed by God to prepare Jairus for the tests of faith he was about to go through in looking for his own daughter to be healed. And in fact, the first part of that test, we find out tonight, began immediately as the woman was healed. Once again, you don't see this in Matthew, but in Mark's account of this same scene, you read this, Mark 5.34. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And then Mark adds this, While he was still speaking... They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? All right, so Jesus told the woman, Your faith has made you well. As a result, go in peace. Her faith had brought her peace with God. And her sin debt was covered. And then on top of that, she was healed physically from this affliction. And that became a testimony to others that God had also healed her soul. That the outward healing was proof of the inward one. Kind of like the paralytic from a few weeks back. But remember what I said last week? At this point, no one in the crowd knows she's been healed. There's no physical evidence of her healing in that moment. She's a a woman who's been hemorrhaging, we're told, bleeding. That's something that's immediately visible. So all that the crowd has, all that Jarius has at that moment, is a testimony. He has a woman who says, I believe in this man to be Messiah. I've touched him and I have been healed. And Jesus is saying, you have been healed, go in peace. It's all testimony at this point. But then as Jesus is speaking to that woman, messengers show up right at that moment with the news that I'm sure Jairus had dreaded to hear, that his daughter has died, and so there's no need for Jesus to visit any longer. After all, how can a healer help a person who's already dead? Now imagine that man, Jairus' state of mind at that moment. Put yourself in his place for just a second. You just hear your daughter's died. And wouldn't you be instantly consumed with grief, with with despair. I mean, all your hopes dashed in the moment. You thought maybe you had a chance with Jesus. You think maybe he's your solution, and then it's too late. And who among us would have had enough faith in that moment to ask Jesus for resurrection? Oh, well, instead of healing him, would you mind coming and resurrecting her? Now, I challenge you to think that any of us would have had that kind of faith in the moment. Nevertheless, this man has to press on with what he's asked of Jesus if he's going to see this miracle, right? And a woman who's just been healed by nothing more than touching Jesus, is certainly an opportunity for faith to be built up in that moment. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, from that experience, wouldn't his faith be encouraged just a little bit? I mean, if she can be healed just because she touched you, maybe there's still hope for my daughter. This is what we read in Mark 5.36. Jesus, overhearing what was spoken between Jairus and his, and his messengers, he says to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Just believe. So Jesus tells him, look, don't go with what you're hearing. Go with what I'm saying. Don't go by sight, go by faith. So the ruler passes this first test. That's really his first test of faith right there. 
The first test of faith is whether he's even going to allow Jesus to accompany him back on the original plan to go heal his daughter. It's a small point in the story, but I'm telling you, friends, if you sit in that moment for a little bit and think about it for a while, you'll realize just how hard that first step was. How many of you would have taken the doctor back to your house after you heard that the patient was dead? That's what this man just did. And as they arrive, they encounter a strange scene. Back in Matthew now, Matthew 9, 23. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. So I want to set the scene for you here because it's a bit odd, I think, for what we normally experience to have Jesus come into this house where a young girl of of age 12, Mark tells us, has just died, and you have flute players, and you have a noisy, disorderly crowd. And that's a bit of a bizarre scene for anyone in our culture, right? But you have to understand, this is Jewish tradition. Mourning the dead was an art form in Jewish culture. Uh, There would be loud, public lamenting by family and friends whenever someone died. They'd do it in the home. They'd spill outside the home. They'd be on the streets lamenting. Uh, In fact, the family honor depended on the deceased receiving such lamentations, and hopefully from a sizable crowd. That was how you you showed the, the love you had for that person. So in order to help families ensure that they had sufficient wailing for their deceased uh, family members, mourning the dead became a professional occupation in Jewish culture. This is no joke. Even the poorest Jewish family would pay for professional mourners to come to the funeral or to the home and attend to the death of a loved one. And in time, these professional mourners became somewhat like Uber drivers are today. They just hung around the homes of those in the community who were near death, or they had heard there might be a a death coming somewhere. They kind of hung around, and then they'd make themselves available for hire the moment the death actually happened. So as this daughter died, the family did the usual thing by hiring professional mourners who began serving immediately for the family in that setting. I mean, you've got to imagine, by the time Jesus arrives there, not far away, we assume, they're already at work. They're, they're wailing loudly, and they're tearing their clothes, and they're pulling on their hair, and all the traditional Jewish signs of mourning. That's the noisy crowd that Matthew describes here. And then you have some even playing musical instruments, which was a part of the mourning process in Jewish custom. So all of this combines to create this circus atmosphere around this girl who's laying in the bed. And at that moment, you reach the second test of faith for this father. Again, it's helpful if you can kind of put yourself a little bit into the mind of this man. He shows up on this scene, and he sees all the commotion, and he understands it culturally. From their point of view, it's not bizarre. It's a sign of mourning. I mean, if you came home, from your home to your home one afternoon, and unexpectedly there was a black vehicle out front, one of those long black vehicles, a bunch of guys standing around in black suits like this, looking down and looking dour, flowers everywhere, you'd say, oh my gosh, what's happened? Okay, That's the equivalent feeling to come on this scene as a Jew. That's the type of of setting that would test a man's faith who's come to see his daughter healed. Will he continue trusting in the woman's testimony and in Jesus' reassurance? Or will he be overwhelmed by all the mourning around him and give up hope? Will he believe Jesus has the power of life over death? Or was he just going to believe that he could heal a living person? 
It's another serious test of faith. And I should add, this is the type of over-the-top mourning, this kind of lamenting. It touches on something Paul says to the church in Thessalonica that I think is worth reminding the believer of, the church of tonight. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we should not grieve over a believer who has died in the same way that the world does, as if we have no hope. Because their faith, the deceased's faith in Jesus, tells us that we will see them again very soon. They're not gone. It's somewhat like what Jesus says. They're asleep for all intents and purposes because between two believers, death is a temporary separation. It's like sending someone away to college or on a mission trip like we talked about. It, you know, you, when you do that, when you see someone travel to the other side of the world, yeah, you mourn the separation. But that's an entirely different feeling from mourning the person's ultimate loss. That's the mindset of a believer. This man could not let the crowd's hopeless wailing persuade him into thinking that there was no hope for his daughter. And you can see the difference in the world's mindset just in this little moment between those who understand the power of faith in Jesus as it relates to the eternity of the soul versus the world who has no basis for that hope. I mean, they honestly should be wailing because they have no basis for hope, no reason for it. He said, they're not needed anymore. Jesus says to these people, they're not needed anymore. Go away. And why? Well, because the girl's not actually dead. She's just asleep. And in fact, Mark records it this way. Jesus said these words in Mark five thirty nine. Entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The girl's not died, but is asleep. The text says, the girl has died. And then Jesus says, no, she's asleep. Now that raises an interesting question just all by itself. If the text of scripture is telling us she died... But Jesus walks in saying, no, no, she's asleep. Is Jesus lying to them? Is he trying to put one over on them? No, he's not. Elsewhere in Scripture, you may know, Paul uses the euphemism of sleep to describe the death of a believer. We don't literally sleep when we die, but it's a convenient metaphor because it reminds us that death is not an end for the believer. And so the Bible euphemistically calls a believer's death sleep because we will rise to live again. But interestingly, the Bible only ever refers to a believer's death as sleep. It never uses that term in reference to an unbeliever's death. Of course, the crowd doesn't understand the euphemism. So they don't understand the the hope of resurrection. And so they laugh. Notice they laugh at Jesus' comment, thinking that he had suggested, oh, you just mistakenly identified her as dead, but she's actually just asleep. Now, there's something about that detail I like because it confirms for us that we're looking at professional mourners. How so? Well, uh, these people obviously had no personal investment in this girl's passing. Had they been genuine mourners who knew the girl and were sad to see her go, they would have been too distraught for the levity that they evidently were willing to show just because of something Jesus said. But they're posers. They momentarily broke out of character to laugh at the ridiculous suggestion before they went back to their wailing. And Jesus is content to allow them to remain confused. You notice? I think it's because he wanted this miracle to remain secret, at least as much as he could. In Mark 5.37, we're told that as Jesus and Jairus depart to go to his home, he does not let the crowd go any further, and he only allows three of his disciples to accompany him to this home because he wants to keep it secret. Only Peter, John, and James are allowed to go in. Furthermore, after the miracle's done, Mark records that Jesus says to the family, you're not to tell anyone about this. Here again, he's concealing this miracle because of the events of chapter 12. Because of the events we'll study there, he is no longer seeking public attention. He only heals the faithful and he asks them to keep it secret. 
So anyway, after the crowds were gone, he gets to work in this home, it says, with those three apostles, the girl's mother and the girl's father. That's who are present. And that's going to lead to the third test for this father. You have this father now entering the room with Jesus. This is the first time he has set his eyes on his dead daughter. Imagine the emotions that run through your heart. I I can't imagine them, and I'm thankful, I guess, that I can't. But certainly I know others who, who have experienced this, and I can't imagine what goes through the heart and the mind in a moment like that. How he must have wanted to drop down at her side and embrace her and then wail. Not like the professional mourners, but like someone who's truly lost somebody. But Jesus has said, before they walked in, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. It's not the end of her story. So here again, his third test. Is he going to accept the word of God, the word of Christ concerning this girl's future, the promise that she will not stay dead? Will he act in faith, kind of like a father entering the room of a daughter who's sleeping? Or is he going to break down in mourning, giving up all hope? These are moments of tests in the heart that come throughout this story. And as we see, he's passing this final test because he stands by quietly. Jesus takes the child's hand as if he's just getting her up out of bed. And Mark says, he says something to the girl. He says, get up. And then instantly she opens her eyes and she does just literally get out of bed and stand up as if she was sleeping. One minute, eyes closed. Next minute, eyes open. Mark says the people in the room were so astonished, they stood by and did nothing. Jesus had to actually encourage them to move. He said, you might want to get her something to eat. And they did. That surprise, by the way, confirms for us that she was dead and everyone knew it. But she was brought back to life. Now, the story of these two miracles is complete. We've narrated through them. We understand them. So let's step back for a minute. Let's understand how they relate to one another and what they teach us. I want you to think about this carefully. And Sometimes it's easier to write things down and see the connection that way. Hopefully your mind can remember what I'm going to say. First, you have a father who comes to the Messiah in faith, seeking to have his daughter of 12 years restored from sickness. And then you have a daughter of her father in heaven coming to the Messiah in faith, seeking to be restored from 12 years of sickness. The woman had been unclean for 12 years because of her bleeding, which barred her from participating in normal life. She was unclean under the law, so anything she touched was unclean. Anyone who touched her was unclean. And likewise, you have that 12-year-old girl who became unclean when she died because dead bodies are unclean under the law. So both of these daughters were unclean. Neither had any reason for hope that they could be restored. The woman who had been bleeding, uh, she had tried everything under the sun, we're told, to try to get a cure, and there was nothing that could be done. Nothing worked. And then, of course, you have the young girl, and, well, dead is dead. No hope there. Or so it would seem. The only hope they both shared was a hope that God could restore their conditions. And therefore, with faith in Jesus as Messiah, the woman dared to touch him, knowing that she would be healed by God's power. But she does so quietly because she also knows, under the law, if she touches that rabbi, he becomes unclean. And she knew he wouldn't want that, or so she thought. So she spared him that humiliation, thinking, I'll touch him secretly, no one has to know. On the basis of her faith, our Father in heaven restored her by healing her through the person of Jesus Christ. And instantly she became clean before God and men. And at the same time, Jesus gladly took her shame. Nevertheless, he didn't react in anger because she touched him. He calls her daughter as a result, saying her faith had healed her. Now compare that to the 12-year-old girl. 
She needed God. She was dead, so certainly she was helpless, apart from whatever the Lord would do for her. And like the woman, she couldn't approach Jesus. You know, this woman couldn't approach Jesus because of her uncleanness. This girl couldn't get up to approach Jesus. So she, too, depended on a father to save her through the power of Jesus. And once more, by a touch, Jesus healed her and became unclean for her sake, taking the curse for her. Now, pulling these two stories together even closer is this 12. Remember we said that there's 12 years of sickness and a 12-year-old girl, and it feels awful coincidental that those two numbers are in two stories that are intertwined in this way. And even the fact that the Scriptures think to mention the numbers in both cases draws our attention. And the number 12 has a symbolic meaning in Scripture. It's always used in conjunction with the government of God on earth. We see that number reflect, that meaning of that number reflected in things like the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and others. So you have two women connected by a number that represents God's government, or we could say the kingdom. The kingdom will be the the government of God on earth under Christ's rule, the one we're all waiting for. And we know that's one of Matthew's central themes, that is of Jesus as the coming king, the one promised to rule the earth in the kingdom, God says Israel would receive, and us with them. And so I think what Matthew recognized in these two events, and in the way they played out together, he recognized that there's a unique picture of the kingdom here, one that takes the stories of the two women and the story of the Father who bridges the two and gives us a picture of what it means as a believer to enter the kingdom and prepare for it. And to see that picture, I want to walk you back through the account of those three characters in a different way. Last week I mentioned that the woman's experience, the one who was bleeding, that that forms a picture of salvation all its own. That is, in a sense, we all encounter Jesus for the first time the way that woman did. We come to Him unclean estranged from God, under condemnation for the condition that we have, that we cannot cure. Her condition was bleeding, which made her unclean, but our condition is the impurity of our soul. We are in unclean in total. We are, our sin makes us unclean. And like that woman, we first come to know of this healer, of this one we can turn to, by trusting in the promises found in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So that as we approach Christ in confidence, out of what we know of the word, we know that he will heal us spiritually if we reach out to him. By the power of the Spirit, we receive his healing. Not by him directly, he's not here, but by the power of the Spirit, we are saved. And then we confess publicly what God has done in our hearts, just as the woman confessed publicly as Jesus turned around. That by our faith, we become a daughter or son of the living God, the Bible says, and we have peace with God. But by our faith, we also become a citizen of this future kingdom that we're all awaiting, the one that will come when Christ returns. And we become a part of Christ's government because the Bible says we will rule over the earth with Christ in the government that he sets up during that thousand-year kingdom. But friends, the kingdom's not here yet, obviously. So for at least a while, we spend time living on this earth in faith, awaiting the kingdom. And that's what brings us to the Father's story. The Father becomes the bridge connecting our moment of faith to our walk of faith. He picks up immediately after the woman is healed, and he carries us into the next account of the daughter. His circumstances form a picture of the second part of our salvation story, that is, our walk of sanctification. As a child of God, we live by faith, not by sight, the Bible says. And like that father, we've bowed our knee to Jesus. We've made our public acknowledgement that he is king. 
And from that point, we begin a journey with him, back to a home, leading us toward a resurrection. We yearn for that journey to end so that we might receive that new life that's been promised, just as that father was anxious to get Jesus back to the home where his daughter was waiting. But along that path, you're going to face tests. You're going to encounter tests of faith. Jesus will give us moments along that walk where we have to resolve yet again to trust in Him so that we can learn what's possible by faith. And in each moment, we face basically the same choice that Father faced in each of His three tests. Will we follow after the world's ways? Will we rely on what we see, on what we know in this world, what we can kind of touch and depend on? Or will we live with eyes for eternity? Do we trust in the Word of Christ or become distracted and discouraged by the noise of the world? It comes a million ways, but it's ever-present, and it's the test of our walk. Running the race that's set before us, to use the writer of Hebrews' words, is a series of passing tests. And as you move through each one, what the Lord's doing, of course, is He's building your faith. He's working you up for the next one. He's strengthening you along the path. And He'll speak to you in quiet moments. He'll speak to you in His Word and in prayer and through a, a godly friend. But all the while, what He's encouraging you to do is to trust in Him and don't trust in what the world keeps putting in His place. As Jesus said to the father of this daughter, He says, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. That's what we'll hear over and over again. And then finally, you have the father's journey bringing him to his daughter who's lying on that bed awaiting resurrection. And that's where our walk ultimately sends us. I mean, this whole thing is not about church. It's it's not about an identity on this earth as Christian. Our whole walk with Christ is not about obtaining something here and now that makes us feel better or live better or think better. Those are means to an end. The end is the resurrected life, the eternal. And we walk with Jesus now knowing it's delivering us to our greatest hope, at the end of the walk, which is resurrection. That 12-year-old girl laying dead on that bed serves as a picture of sorts of our final state of faith. For as the government of Christ comes to earth, His saints, we're told, will join Him in resurrected bodies that Jesus calls up from the grave. Just as that girl was raised up, so too will we be raised up by the Father because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you take the three sections I just outlined that are covered by the two women and the Father who bridges them together, you find in Romans 6.22, in just one verse, the same story. Paul says in 6.22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. That one verse says, All three steps of our faith life, as represented by the characters in Matthew's story, are linked. He says, By our faith we're freed from sin, from our separation, from our uncleanness under the law. That is, just like the woman who was bleeding. And as a result, he says, We derive the benefit which is our sanctification. That is our walking with Jesus as He grows our faith. And that's just the journey the Father took. Which leads, He says, to the outcome, eternal life, which we receive at our resurrection just like that young girl did. The number 12 in those two stories act as bookends, reminding us that Christ's earthly ministry was focused on the kingdom of how you become a daughter or son of the king by faith, of how you enter the kingdom by faith and one day live in it, raised up in new life. And there is even one final detail in these stories that I love. It's another reminder of what we look forward to in the kingdom. You remember the first thing Jesus said to the young girl after she was resurrected? Or said about her, anyway. 
He says, she needs to eat. Get the girl some food, right? That reminds us of the very first event that we will participate in after our resurrection and our return here as part of the government. What is it? The Bible says we will take a part in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That the first thing we will do is eat after our resurrection. That is, after we come here on earth. He feeds us with a great feast that inaugurates the kingdom. Jesus says in Luke thirteen twenty nine, They will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So how's your journey with Christ going? Think about the three steps in your own walk. Have you begun your life in faith like that woman did? That should be the most obvious question for anyone, right? And then as you moved out from that point, are you facing the tests of life that God is bringing to you as you walk with Christ? And are you resting in those promises like the Father did? Are you giving up on Jesus too quickly? I would imagine that for the vast majority of us, that's where the challenge lies. It's the daily challenge of walking. But maybe this one will hit you even more soberly. Are you eagerly anticipating your resurrection? Do you give even a moment's thought to it? I find a lot of problems in life get a lot smaller when I turn my mind to being resurrected and living in a sinless body. They don't go away, but I don't care quite so much about them. That's the eternal life that the young girl represented. But I want to add a fourth category, and this will be the last thing I, I, I add. And this for those in this room who perhaps you're like those professional mourners. That is, you're going through the motions. You're kind of putting on the show. You, you know, you're... You're in the mode of Christian, but you're ready to break out of your character any time that you hear Jesus promising you things that sound impossible. You know, if it's not here and now and earthly, it just doesn't seem real. The Word of God is calling any who are in that category to learn from these examples, and I hope you will. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray for those in this room who, like that older woman, feel unclean before you and sense their distance and yearn to be called son or daughter. Father, I pray that you would talk to their hearts tonight and let them know that by faith alone they may come and by faith alone they will be restored. I pray, Father, for those in the room who are like the Father, walking but struggling maybe, where tests of life are wearing them down and where faith seems a distant alternative to the panic and fear and worry of real life. We pray, Father, that you would speak to them as you did to that father and say, do not fear, do not worry, only believe. Trust in Jesus. Let him walk the path ahead of you and show you the way. And Father, for those who have lost sight, perhaps, of the resurrection, who aren't thinking about eternal things enough, Father, remind us that this world is passing and we have overcome this world and that the new one is right around the corner. And it's the one that lasts. So as real as this place may seem to us on a given day, Father, it's, it's the fake world. It's the one that's not real. The one that's real is the one we're going to enjoy with you soon, and we look forward to that day. And finally, Father, for any in, in here that perhaps they're professional Christians, they've made their way into this room, they've been a part of some group for a while, but it's all part of a, of a lifestyle, Father. It's not who they are in their hearts. I pray, Father, you would break through that tonight and show them the truth, explain to them what they've been missing, and call them into your relationship, a relationship with you by faith, Father. We pray for that. Thank you for a church, Father, that cares about your word. And thank you for a Savior that cares about us more than we knew him. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.